Acts 17 verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When told them about Jesus and his resurrection, he said, What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others say, He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Anthenes, as well as the foreigners in the Anthens, to spend all the time discussing this latest idea. So Paul, standing over the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you were religious and very religious in every way, but I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown god. This god, whom you worship without knowing, is this one I'm telling you about. He is the god who made the world and everything in it, since he is the lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God, and perhaps feel their way toward him, and find him though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we love, we live, move, and exist, as some of you, the own poets, have said. We are all his offsprings, and since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol disguised by class craftsmen from gold, silver, or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I can hardly believe that it is now nearly 39 years since I came to Bridge of Dawn as pastor. Many people then, since, and now thank God for the church's existence and witness in this community and many changes have taken place in the 40 years since it started. However, it is not so much the past, but more the present and certainly the future, that we wish to look at this morning in this intriguing title, Looking Forward Reflectively. My thoughts today are based on Acts 17, to verse 23 to the end. I say based on deliberately, as this is not necessarily doing an exegesis of the passage. I believe that there are three abiding principles in this passage, 
and throughout Paul's ministry, which are very relevant to the times in which we live and for this juncture of the church's history. An introduction, as an introduction, let me say that I've been reading Tom Wright's biography of Paul over the last few weeks, and it was that which brought me to this passage we read today and to the thoughts and theology behind it. Many commentators have seen this passage either as an aberration from Paul's usual format of the gospel, or, for those more on the fringe of Christian truth and reality, a place to construct what is often called a natural theology, that is, arguing for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity from observation of the natural world alone and with no reference to or need for any form of divine revelation. But, Tom Wright says, and I agree with him, this is all a misunderstanding. Listen to his words. The Areopagus was a court appearance for Paul. Paul was on trial. It was a dangerous moment. It could have gone badly wrong. He was all alone. He has important things on his mind, battles outside and fears inside. He has no leisure, physical or mental, to play the detached philosopher. It is, however, characteristic of the man that he would seize the opportunity, not merely to defend himself, though that is what he is doing throughout the speech, but to do so in such a way as to challenge with considerable rhetorical skill the basic assumptions of the Greek worldview. In other words, Paul was being as true to the gospel here as he was in many other speeches and sermons he made during his travels. So let us look at the three principles I spoke of earlier. First, awareness of the culture. The key questions Paul was asked were about the relationship between God or the gods and the world, particularly the lives of humans. Epicureans believed that the world of the gods was entirely separate from the human world. The Stoics were basically pantheists. God and the world more or less the same thing. Many poets and playwrights had a wide variation on these themes. The pagans had every fertility cult under the sun and many gods and goddesses formed in their own image and with a bias as to how they lived their own lives. To all of them, Paul simply seemed to be bringing in another variation of divinities. So he is questioned, perhaps even with coldness and sneering, what is this new teaching? And so he begins his speech, which can now be read in its proper context. Paul is coming from a life steeped in the Jewish faith, having been one of its zealous propagators, and one committed to its rules and regulations. His entire speech exudes the centrality of monotheism, a created universe, the peculiarly Jewish thought of resurrection, and yet the other utter transcendence and yet intimate personal presence of the one God and the fulfilment of it all in Jesus. He is also deeply aware of the other religions and philosophies of the day, and people's futile attempts to forge gods of their own making, and more often than not, made in their own image. He is well aware of Greek thought and the vast array of religions. He comes to them from his Jewish and now Christian experience, and challenges them from the perspective of that same God, now revealed in Jesus the Messiah, who had revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul was also a Roman citizen living under both the greatness and the brutality of Rome's rule. He used his citizenship on more than one occasion, not to escape problems, but to gain an audience. He was also aware that there was no love lost between the Greek establishment and the Roman Empire. 
He saw the empire as an enemy to the gospel, but also by its very infrastructure, a benefit to its proclamation. Paul comes as a man of all these worlds, and yet as one who sees in the Messiah, Jesus, in his life, crucifixion, death and resurrection, the fulfillment of all these things. He comes proclaiming him King of all kings and Lord of all lords. I'm reminded of Eugene Peterson's words concerning Matthew. He says, Matthew tells the story in such a way that not only is everything previous to us completed in Jesus, we see the connections with everything that has gone before. Every day we wake up in the middle of something that is already going on. That has been going on for a long time. Genealogy and geology, history and the cosmos and culture and God. The operative word is fulfilled and that points to Jesus. It is one thing to know Jesus and the gospel, but in order to apply that to human life and experience, we need to be aware of where our contemporaries are living and what they are seeking and what they are thinking and believing or not, as the case may be and to show how they might find fulfilment in Jesus. We live in a highly technological society that is changing so fast that the average older person can hardly keep up. Social media is full of every sort of human behaviour, and much more intensely so since people say things on it that they might never say face to face. There are so many fears generated by climate change, coronavirus, what is true and what is false in the media and the populism of the age. It is a world of shallow thinking, political correctness, populism, secularism, scepticism, disaffection and pluralism, where everybody's opinion has equal truth. Therefore, people are often deeply disaffected. They have no certainties in life. They have no clarity about morality, no convictions of what is right or wrong. The result is a society with no true anchors for life. No real privacy in a media-mad world. No sense of God, but lots of gods. Lots of mental health issues. Lots of extreme irrational views. And a lot of vulnerability. That is a brief survey of some aspects of the society we live in. And I trust that you as a church and individuals will seek to discover and open up that whole area for yourselves. The second point after awareness of the culture is affirmation of the gospel. In all of Paul's letters, sermons and actions, there are three aspects that are always there concerning the gospel. The first is the challenge of the gospel. In this passage, as in many others, Paul speaks of the man God has ordained to for the judgment of the world. He is full of the reality that the one he met on the road to Damascus is a long-awaited Messiah of Israel and the King of kings and Lord of lords of every age and every nation. Paul sees in Jesus the kingdom that, that has come. In Jesus, God is revealed. In Jesus, all powers are to bow the knee. In Jesus, the victory over sin, death, darkness and evil has been won. And the day is coming in which that will be the ultimate and eternal reality. In every generation of the church, the church, in order to be true to the gospel, has had to challenge the powers that be in whatever way was appropriate for the time and situation. When she has failed to do so, she has compromised with the powers of darkness and day, and the day of the day, 
and has lost her way. That is still to be the central core of the gospel for Jesus today and every age. Jesus is king and the kingdom has come. The challenge of the gospel, the comfort of the gospel, at the heart of his message and life is the statement that God is love, that God loves all humans as they are, despite their sin. And in Christ Jesus has entered into the sin and frailty of humanity in order to bear their sins and their judgment and to offer new life and hope in his resurrection and ascension. This is all part of the kingdom story, and it is the good news for all sinners who repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. Their sin, their alienation from God, their separation from the Creator has been dealt with in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. In him all things are and will be made new. The comfort of the gospel, the rationale of the gospel. I believe that in the generation that we live in, we need to take another leaf out of Paul's book. He not only spoke to his culture, he not only proclaimed the lordship of Jesus, but he gave a reason for the faith that lay within him. He would present his case, give his arguments for his beliefs, proclaim the faith in language and ways that connected with his culture, but also challenged them at both the level of their wills and their minds, giving a reason for his faith. It is what today we would call apologetics, which is not apologizing for the gospel, but an explanation of why we believe it. We need to learn again to speak to the people where they are and engage with them where they are from the gospel perspective. This does not eliminate the Holy Spirit, but in Paul's case, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we too need to be relying entirely on him. Finally, the third point, acting in love. Underneath Paul's intellect and theology, be the heart of love for God and for people. Paul shows and shares the love of God for people. In his call to be aware of the culture, his call to affirm the gospel, there underlies it all his call to show them God's love. I read this the other day. In order to proclaim Jesus, be Jesus. That is what God calls his church to be in the age in which we live, just as much as it was in Paul's time. The fundamental reality of being Christian of being in Christ or participating in Christ, is that we are a mission community. Michael Gorman says, we are to embody the practices of love, peacemaking, reconciliation, restorative justice, forgiveness, nonviolence, which correspond to what God has done in Jesus the Messiah. God's heart is shown in the sending of Jesus to take on our humanity, to die on the cross and to rise again as victor over sin and death and evil. Christ came to show the heart of God and did so in his own self-giving. And as those who are in Christ by faith, we are to be God-like and reveal him both in our personal lives and in our corporate life together. We are, so to speak, to manifest Christ. Christ-like love, Christ-like truth, Christ-like justice. Christ-like forgiveness, Christ-like reconciliation, since we are the community of the redeemed and are in Christ and he is in us. 
It is the cross expressed in our living. It is not us doing all this, but Christ by his Spirit expressing through us the character of God, who has come to redeem, restore, and reconcile all men to himself in Christ. We are to show the wonder of the self-giving love of God and Jesus, since we are one with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May God give you as a church and as individuals at this time the wisdom, the grace, and the power to become this kind of people.